We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is Tyrese Halliburton, and you're listening to Setting the Pace. It is your boy Mike Focci here bringing you another episode of Setting the Pace. We will not be joined by Alex today. That man is enjoying a much needed vacation. So Alex, if you're listening, I hope you're enjoying uh, your trip. But the show goes on and we will be joined by Grant Afset. Uh, He's an NBA writer for Fan Nation as well as Hoop Analysis Network. Grant covered the Pacers for quite a few years and he, you know, from Indiana. He's moved on since covering the Spurs as well as the Mavericks. Uh, you know, just kind of shed some light on Bendik Matherin, Summer League, the Pacers offseason, and where they go from here. But let me get out of the way and bring on Grant. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, everybody, we now welcome on Grant Afseth, who you've probably seen. He writes for Fan Nation as well as Hoop Analysis Network. 
Grant, what's going on? Uh, not much. Excited to talk about some uh, Pacers and NBA uh, uh, topics for sure. Absolutely, Grant. We were just talking offline, but we'll let the listeners know. Uh, Grant, I remember you writing about the Pacers for years. I mean, I want to say it dates back, I mean, well over five years ago at this point. I know now, I guess you're primarily covering maybe what, the Spurs, the Mavericks, maybe some some Rockets or definitely at least Texas basketball teams. But tell us a little bit about your background covering the Pacers. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, you know, in high school, I uh, made a couple websites, uh, played around with the uh, getting some experience writing about the NBA and focused on the Pacers. Uh, I used to live uh, in Indiana uh, when I was a lot younger. And, uh, you know, I figured that would be an intriguing team uh, to kind of focus on. And, you know, that was that kind of coincided a little bit with their rise, um, you know, as a team, uh, the Paul George era. You know, they were a pretty intriguing mm-hmm. uh, team to, to kind of focus on for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, my co-host Alex, uh, you know, I know he's not on here today, but – he loves to give me crap because I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. So he loves to just, you know, make it seem that I'm, you know, not a Pacer fan, which is obviously ridiculous. I am now I moved over to uh, New Jersey. But, hey, no matter where you live, I mean, it, the, the fire still, you know, it burns deep. So I always appreciate you, you know, continuing to touch on the Pacers from time to time. But one thing that leads us into an article that you wrote about you know, kind of highlighting Summer League, you know, recently, a couple of rookies that stood out. Grant, the reason why I really had to reach out to you is because Benedict Matherin played so well, yet you don't really hear him talked about in any of these other media outlets, and I think it's a crime. So can you just kind of shed some light on what you liked, you know, about Matherin's game in Summer League? Yeah, I thought, um, you know, something that uh, I kind of like going into summer league really wanted to see from him was uh, some of his own, uh, you know, like shot creation, uh, you know, getting getting his own bucket. Because um, he, at Arizona, uh, that wasn't necessarily a requirement uh, too often. And he actually had more, uh, I believe, made field goals out of isolation possessions at summer league really than he did his whole season at Arizona. And, you know, I just thought, uh, you know, seeing progression, like that was intriguing and, you know, heading into his rookie season, something to also keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, I thought, you know, when you really talked about the difference in isolation, I mean, one key stat you talked about there, you said Matherin produced uh, just 0.4 points per possession on total of only 19 isolation possessions uh, last year at Arizona. So basically he was not really doing that isolation ball, which, you know, a lot of teams should be intrigued by. But you mentioned he actually recorded two more made field goals from isolation plays in summer league than he did in 37 games for the Wildcats last season. So I thought that was a really telling stat. So where do you feel like, you know, as he's evolving his game, I mean, what do you think, you know, his max potential could be? Yeah, I think he's got a pretty significant potential. I think a lot of it will have to do with, uh, you know, how – how much he can uh, become a perimeter shot creator. Some of those ISO attempts, uh, you know, he, he had that foot on the line or was really, uh, you know, close inside the three-point line. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how effective he'll be as a pull-up three-point shooter uh, running ball screens, uh, things of that nature. That really raises the ceiling of the offense as a whole uh, and for himself individually. Uh, so that will be something, uh, you know, just seeing him continue to extend his range in those tougher, uh, like, shot-making situations. 
And we know that he can shoot threes. I believe he's about a, a 37% you know, shooter from three, uh, you know, last year in college. So the three ball is there. It's just a matter of, you know, being able to get him, you know, confident enough looks. If there is a point guard that can get him the looks that he desires, Tyrese Halliburton has to be amongst the top of the list, right? How do you feel that that pairing could be in the years to come? Yeah, I, th- I think it will be a very intriguing pairing. I think as, uh, you know, Benedict Mathern continues to develop, he can kind of grow into being that wing scorer that, you know, every great point guard needs. Uh, you know, in the playoffs, uh, things slow down. And, uh, you know, when, when players are spacing out, uh, plays are going to break down. And, uh, you know, you need to be able to rely on players with size to be able to put the ball on the floor and make some tough plays. And I think that's that's definitely the idea of where you would like to see uh, Benedict Matherin grow into being, for sure. Okay. And, you know, he's uh, he's no slouch on defense, but obviously he's going to be more known for, you know, his offensive game. But was there anything, maybe from a defensive standpoint, or anything over there that, that left you more desired to see? Like anything that he's really got to focus on coming into this season as, hey, he's going to have to improve on that? I think honestly, just adjusting, uh, just in general to uh, NBA talent uh, will be a process for all the rookies coming into the league. Um, but I do think uh, I did like um, you know just seeing like how uh, he applies his physical tools. I think he's a very strong player. Um, I think that's going to help him with guarding, you know, obviously multiple positions. Um, I'd be curious to see him uh, guard some more, uh, you know, uh, like quicker guards, uh, you know, NBA talent. I'd be uh, curious to see at that level um, how he handles that. Um, I do think overall he's got a lot to like about uh, his his defensive potential. You know, he was second team all summer league, so that was great. Only played three games over there, but he very much showed enough. I mean, averaged just over 19 points per game in 22 minutes. So fantastic stuff. One of the most efficient players in summer league. But overall, from a rookie standpoint – uh, how do you think that he stacks up in this class? Yeah, I think he's definitely uh, one of the top players in this class. I think uh, his team situation, because uh, that has a lot to do with you know how a player will end up uh, you know performing at the NBA level. Some guys get stuck behind uh, you know um, a, a veteran or you know things of that nature. But I think uh, you know this year's class, there's a lot of uh, intriguing prospects in favorable situations with like pathways to big roles. I think he's definitely one of them. I think it helps that he has, you know, Tyrese Halliburton to kind of grow with as they continue to, uh, you know, take on larger roles and, uh, you know, showcase what they can do and improve, play through some growing pains. Uh, He's not going to have to worry about, like, uh, a big-time, like, usage player kind of taking his uh, opportunities uh, with the Pacers. And I think that definitely uh, kind of paves the way for him to be one of those uh, most intriguing prospects in this year's uh, class for sure. Oh, yeah. From from a potential standpoint, you know, Paul George was picked, you know, 10th overall. Felt like there was a lot of potential over there. But we talked about Matherin being the sixth overall pick, a bit more of a, a known name coming out from a bigger college. So the Pacers got to give him every opportunity to be able to, to flourish over here. So while he's not going to be promised a starting role, I think all Pacer fans are saying this guy's got to be in the starting lineup. You got to, you got to, you know, you can't have a short leash on him. you got to unleash him. So that's something I'm looking forward to see. But right now, you know, the Spurs, a team that you're very familiar with, the Pacers, obviously a team that I'm very familiar with, they have a ton of cap space left and not many moves to show for it this, se- this offseason. If anything, both teams have kind of gone in the opposite direction. I mean, you had the Spurs 
trading DeJounte Murray. You had the Pacers trading Malcolm Brogdon. So overall, I mean, do you feel that both teams are just waiting to hop in on a three-team deal to be the team that acquires more assets while maybe being able to unload some contracts, whether it's a Doug McDermott or, you know, Miles Turner or Buddy Heald? Do you think they're just kind of on standby? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think there's some players and, like, uh, you know, names with contract statuses that uh, could definitely be benefited from uh, trading or at least being open to helping facilitate one of those blockbuster trades. You know, similar to Miles Turner with the Pacers, uh, Jakob Podol, uh, he's also entering expiring uh, year for his contract. And I think, uh, you know, when you have players that are 25 or older, um, you know, as you're at the start of a rebuild or at least very early stage, um, you know, when it's a contract year, you got to start thinking, start thinking about uh, some opportunities uh, to capitalize on value or, uh, you know, really make a commitment one way or another. You know, Doug McDermott, a player that, you know, signed with the Spurs last year uh, before the season, he was someone who flourished in Indiana. And now just about a year later, it feels like McDermott doesn't make sense on the Spurs. I know he's read about $13 million, but that's actually, I want to say, the highest paid player on the Spurs. Um, so what is it about McDermott that it just didn't work out or was it strictly just the direction of the team did not fit McDermott's timeline at this moment? Yeah, I think it's definitely the latter. I think, uh, you know, he brings uh, quite a bit of uh, helpful elements to an offense, you know, obviously as he showed during his time with the Pacers, you know, the dribble handoff game and all that stuff that he shared with uh, Sabonis, um, you know, he, he's a very effective cutter. Uh, tough shot maker. Um, those are all attributes that any team would love to have. Um, I do think, you know, the defensive side of the ball limits necessarily how much he can kind of meet that contract value uh, if he doesn't have a team that can kind of cover that up um, and let him play extended minutes. Um, but I do think uh, it's more so just pretty much uh, wrong place, wrong time. You know, he, he was there when they were looking to compete. Then, uh, you know, the contract status of DeJounte Murray uh, kind of led them towards a rebuild. And I think that's just pretty much uh, what it comes down to is just wrong place, wrong time, pretty much. You know, the Spurs are a team that just had what, at least, I think it was three first round picks, three in the top 25, I believe it was. Is that accurate? Or was it four? Yeah, they had the, uh, the ninth, the 20th, and the 25th. And then I want to say, like, it could have been like 41 or something, some earlier ish second round pick but I remember looking at the Spurs as a team that could maybe want to trade the 25th pick something of the sort it ends up not being the case right now the Pacers are slated to have three first round picks for next year if the Cavs pick converts to the Pacers so the Cavs got to make the playoffs the Pacers will have the, the, uh, their own pick the Cavs pick and Boston's pick how many first round picks is too many because we want to accumulate assets but I mean, is there a certain amount of picks in one draft where you're saying, man, we just can't draft that many players? Or, hey, are you thinking, look, this is going to be a great draft class coming up. Get as many as you can. I definitely think it's, uh, you know, three three tends to be a number, I feel like, where it gets, starts to get a little <laughs> congested when you're uh, above that. I think, uh, you know, when it is a loaded draft class, it's definitely more uh, favorable to kind of, you know, have as many darts to throw at the dartboard, if you will. Um, taking your chances. Um, I think, uh, you know, if that Cavaliers pick conveys as expected, um, I do think there uh, is a lot to like about having three picks in next year's class. I think it's more intriguing um, than this year's class. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, with the Pacers kind of having a foundation of, you know, recently drafted players that they want to build around, having extra pieces to kind of, or, you know, draft picks to add supporting cast talent, you know, to them on rookie contracts um, that they can kind of take advantage of bird rights in the future, um, I do think is a very intriguing thing. Yeah, I know, like I mentioned before, I know you covered the Mavericks before. Uh, it always felt like a knock on Rick Carlisle was he doesn't play the youth as much. He's not playing rookies. But now all of a sudden, Rick, at this point in his career, his third stint as a Pacers coach, I think he's been coaching for, you know, quite, quite some time at this point. I'm not going to put a year on it because, I, I, you know, I don't know when it, the exact year he started coaching. But did you ever envision him leading a rebuild at this point in his coaching career? You know, I think um, it's a surprising thing. Uh, you know, I remember at the trade deadline, especially when people were kind of like, oh, they wouldn't trade, you know, Sabonis or uh, Malcolm Brogdon. I know he was ineligible, but you know what I mean? Like uh, just talking about, uh, you know, veteran uh, names because they were expected to be a, a substantially better team entering the season. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the whole sentiment was, you know, why would Rick Carlisle go to the Pacers and then they would start rebuilding? So I definitely think it is a surprising outcome for sure. Yeah, no one really expected that. But the way the direction that things were going, I'm very happy that the Pacers were able to say, hey, we're going to pull the plug on this. You know, we're going to stop trying to compete for maybe a playing game at best at this moment and really try try and look for something with a, a higher ceiling. And I think that that's something now that's been a breath of fresh air uh, through the fan base of saying, we can buy into this. Like, yeah, it's not going to be this year, but the future is very bright. And when we talk about it not being the year, the prize at the end of the year is going to be Victor Wembanyama, who seems to be the prospect of all prospects in the last couple of years. I think the Pacers have the stiffest of competition in the San Antonio Spurs, who, I mean, you look at that roster right now, it, it's tough to look at. It looks like they got their eyes on Victor. Do you feel that he's the perfect player to tank for? Yeah, I, I think he is, too. And I think there's uh, plenty of uh, other intriguing prospects as well. If You know, the, the ping pong balls don't necessarily uh, bounce in your favor. Um, but, uh, you know, more about Victor. I, I definitely think, you know, whenever you have a, uh, you know, over seven foot, uh, elite shot blocking, uh, you know, tough shot maker type guy. I think, uh, you know, that really changes how you can run your team. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, having that on a rookie contract, if you can make quick work of, uh, you know, your roster construction, kind of revamping into a competitive mode, uh, you know, I think that's definitely, it's kind of like a, a NFL situation where you have a quarterback on a rookie contract and then you just go all in. I think, uh, that would be an intriguing possibility for really any team that has a chance to do so, especially teams that are used to being competitive, like, you know, the Spurs or the Pacers. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, I was, I was going to mention that earlier. The Pacers and the Spurs were the model of consistency for quite some time. I mean, I, I would say just overall since from the, the moment that the Spurs got Duncan in 97 to, you know, the moment that he retired, it felt like they were always a contender. And it felt like during that span, you know, if not even earlier in the early 90s, the Pacers were a model of consistency to at least make the playoffs. Or when you look at the conference finals, I mean, the Pacers had, I want to say it was like six conference finals appearances from like right around 94 to about 2013. So right in there, they were a mainstay. Uh, but now both teams looking on the outside in, it, it, it's an odd spot to be in, but it has to eventually happen to everybody. 
you know, were you surprised to see both teams really pull the plug? Or is this just like, hey, eventually everyone's got to start over? Yeah, I definitely think, uh, you know, with the way things were trending for both teams, uh, especially the Spurs, like DeJounte Murray has such a low uh, contract uh, for what he provides, especially coming off an all-star season, uh, that like a contract extension is just not financially logical for him. And then you have to run the risk of, okay, when these two years are up, uh, is he going to want to stick around? And, you know, when you already are kind of getting a a little bit of a word that uh, he's talking with guys like Trey Young about teaming up, then, you know, it's time to start picking up the phone and uh, having some trade talks. Um, I do think for the Pacers, you know, the two two centers uh, thing, you know, that just – I know Minnesota is going to be trying it, but, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I just think – there's, there's too many limitations uh, for certain combinations. And I think the Pacers, uh, you know, Sabonis, um, you know, the, the lack of, uh, you know, defensive ability out in space, uh, you know, things of that nature. I think it's just challenging to necessarily win that way. Um, and I think uh, it's not necessarily like a, this horrible net negative thing where you're like, oh, my God, why are they even wasting their time? I just think it's like, you know, it's good, but you could be better and, you know, better – um, the idea is that you're actually competing for a championship. And I think if you, you know, it just puts a lid on you uh, in a way where you just can't really get out of the first round. Maybe you do if there's a good matchup, you know, if everything falls in your favor and you get to that point. But you just don't want to be playing every year for that as your grand prize, especially if you don't have a perimeter superstar that can kind of make the most of those big skill sets. And I think that's just kind of where the Pacers are at now, where, you know, your hope is that Tyrese Halliburton is that, Um, you know, player that grows into being that elite sort of perimeter playmaker that kind of sets the foundation for the unit as a whole. And, you know, without taking a chance with that trade, you wouldn't have gotten a talent like that because you'd be stuck in the, you know, the teens or the 20s. You have to get lucky with the, you know, prospect panning out, exceeding your expectations. So I definitely think both franchises made the right choice. Um, and some of it's circumstance and some of it's like a, a smart, deliberate choice where, you know, hey, we have an opportunity to make this move. Let's take advantage of it and make the most of it and see where it goes. Yeah, to me, you had a, you had a great analogy of, you know, putting a lid on the team. And it just felt like the ceiling was just not high enough. And at, at best, you know, maybe the Pacers were able to like a couple of years ago, they were the fourth seed against Miami. But that was even a series that they did not really look competitive and the, the heat looked far better. And it, it was it was tough. But overall, I saw I saw you at a post recently talking about most improved player of the year odds for next year. And you actually really liked Tyrese Halliburton's odds. We had Tyrese Halliburton on uh, the other week, and I was basically saying how I think that he could make the next most improved player of the year because he, he really gets the most out of his players. But you know, do you really feel that he has an opportunity to be the, the most improved player for next year? I do. I think after the Malcolm Brogdon trade, I think the style of basketball that will be played is going to be fully focused on Tyrese Halliburton, you know, what's best for him, um, how he wants to play. Uh, You know, Rick Carlisle uh, definitely likes to uh, utilize his, uh, you know, main perimeter players. Obviously, I don't think he was going to get as high of a usage rate as Luka Doncic because nobody does. (laughs) But, uh, you know, something along those lines where he's going to be a clear-cut focus. They're going to probably play fast. Um, and he's got the talent around him to play fast. You know, um, I think Benedict Matherin is going to be a help on the wing. I think Chris Duarte 
having another off season to kind of you know improve his game, all that stuff. Um, that is only going to help. Um, there's not going to be a situation where there's this like older all star who's just taking up touches, and you kind of have to hope one day, okay, maybe they'll move him and I'll get the opportunity. Like no, this, this team is fully focused on their young players. And I think, uh, you know, even regardless of, uh, you know, what happens with uh, you know, the veteran players like Buddy Heald or Miles Turner, what I like about um, their options is that it's not the worst thing just to let them play because both of those players can shoot. They're very cohesive and it makes it e- the game easier for your franchise cornerstone. And that's why I like the MIP odds uh, for Halliburton because I think he's going to have the opportunity. He's got the floor spacing, the, the style of basketball that fits him. And Red Carlisle will definitely uh, put all those things together, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, Halliburton was essentially averaging 20 and 10 as a pacer last year, you know, in uh, in the 26 games that he played. So right over there, I mean, it, it was it broke down to 17 and a half and, uh, you know, 9.6 uh, assists to be very specific. But at that point, you're talking about he didn't even get to log a minute with Miles Turner. I mean, Brogdon was was really in and out of the lineup. I mean, there was a lot of guys that he never got to really play with because they were hurt. Like Chris Duarte was in and out of the lineup. So I'm really excited about, uh, you know, how Halbert can get better and better. But two guys that you mentioned, Miles Turner, Buddy Heald. Uh, Buddy played phenomenal with the Pacers from coming over Sacramento. Maybe phenomenal is a strong word, but he showed that he, there was more to his game than just scoring. He was a playmaker. He was averaging far more assists than he ever did in Sacramento. I felt like he was shooting the three ball real well. It seemed like he was happy there. Turner, like I mentioned, didn't get to play with Halliburton due to the foot injury. Very unfortunate. Miles is heading towards a uh, contract year. Right over here, we'll hit free agency after the year. Doesn't seem like the Pacers are working on early extension or anything. But both guys have been in the rumors lately. We've heard the Lakers and Pacers have talked through a trade that the Pacers were offered Russ uh, I believe the 2027 first round pick. And then the latest, it sounds like two second round picks for Turner and Heald. I think the Pacers are in, they hold a leverage here. If they're going to make a deal, do you feel it's imperative for there to be two unprotected first round picks coming from the Lakers? I do. I, I think, uh, you know, I know a lot of people will try to spin the Westbrook expiring contract as being an asset. And I, I know that, uh, Expiring salaries are an asset, um, you know, in a traditional sense. But we're talking about a guy I believe is making the third most money in the entire NBA this year, and his te- his fit on his team was poor. Um, and it doesn't really sound like, uh, based off of how things have leaked, um, you know, about his relationship with teammates, um, you know. Uh, the desire to play elsewhere, his agent leaking a statement. It's like, how, I, don't, I don't really know how it's viable or tenable, whatever you want to say, to necessarily bring him back, um, especially when a lot of Laker fans have had their hopes high of getting Kyrie Irving. If that doesn't happen, the disappointment of how Russell Westbrook plays is going to be magnified because they just are going to be looking at it and thinking, this should be Kyrie Irving. This should be Kyrie Irving. And uh, I don't know. I just I just think it's very challenging to run it back for a team. I know injuries play a role, but um, that wasn't even close uh, to achieving their title aspirations. Like the the fact that the Spurs were kind of just treading water and uh, managed to uh, out edge them for a playing spot and then blew it up in the offseason. I just feel yeah. like that's not a good indicator of where you are. 
as a franchise, regardless of injuries. And uh, yeah, I just think uh, overall um, the Pacers, you know, getting that first round pick, uh, one of those first round picks has to be for, you know, okay, we'll take him, take his contract on um, and we're going to reach a buyout. Well, I just think you have to be compensated if you're going to go in with the understanding that you're going to probably be paying a ton of money for a guy who won't play basketball for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, Russ's number is, I want to say, it's just over 47. It might be like $47.3 million. I can't see a scenario where he's taking less than $40 million. John Wall recently had just about the same contract. I want to say he got paid about 42 out of the $47 million. So it's not like the Pacers are going to get this significant discount and buying out Russ. And even then, it's still hard to imagine the Pacers cutting that check. But you you talked about before about getting Brogdon out of the way to free up Halliburton. I mean, it doesn't even seem like an option to have Russ on this team, slowing the development of Tyrese Halliburton. So it's a bit of a messy situation. So curious to see how things unfold over there. But the Pacers do still have an opportunity to, A, have Turner start the year with the Pacers, potentially have a career year. If things aren't working towards an extension, you could flip him at the trade deadline potentially for a first-round pick, assuming that he stays healthy. And Buddy Heald, you know, to the right team that needs shooting, could potentially you know, warrant a first-round pick. Not a guarantee, but he could. The contract actually decreases in value uh, the following year by about 2 or $3 million, which is always appealing. And then also, Buddy was second in made threes last year, which everybody forgets. So I do think that if you're to break it up, and we're talking about getting more recent picks, if you're to trade those players, you might be able to get a 2023 pick or a 2024 pick, not a 2027 or a 2029 pick where the Pacers front office, no one might even be there. There's a better chance that they're not there in 2027 than they are there. So I understand that they're they're in a good spot right now to hold leverage over the Lakers. So overall, I would say, you know, moving forward over here, what was really your perception when the Pacers presented the largest offer sheet to DeAndre, even though it didn't work out from, from a, a non-Pacers standpoint, maybe, do you think they warranted at least a pat on the back of, Hey, things are changing in Indiana. Yeah. I do think uh, with the reluctance to, to present offer sheets to uh, you know big name restricted free agents, I think it is a change of pace. Uh, that's good to see. Cause you know, I think it's antiquated to kind of feel that, you know, your NBA partners, wherever you want to call them, are going to have, have your back. I, I, I don't really know if I recall situations where that's necessarily paid off, okay. uh, where you do you do favors for uh, another team, and then they're going to be like, yeah, we'll really do you a favor. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, I think uh, at best it's a marginal benefit. And I think uh, really you, you have to just be aggressive doing whatever you can to get better. And I think, uh, you know, especially when you have young players – that you're, uh, you know, starting a new era of Pacers basketball with. I think just showing that you're going to be aggressive and say, hey, we're, you know, like if opportunities come, we're going to get better. Uh, there's no need for you to kind of be, you know, thinking about, I'm not saying they would, but, um, you know, as you develop, we're going to be aggressive looking for talent and you don't have to be thinking about, oh, I have to go somewhere else to play with those types of players. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I think there's some, uh, you know, people talking about, um, you know, the hurt feelings or whatever you will with uh, – you know, Miles uh, Turner with the, you know, getting an upgrade at your position or the attempt to. 
But I think um, in reality, I think everyone just kind of understands in that regard, that's a business. Like, you know, he's entering a contract year where, you know, we talked about the Spurs with DeJounte Murray's contract status. It's not quite the same, um, but it, it is limiting with the 120% rule uh, for the final year salary uh, to basically offer um, the first starting year of the next contract being 120% of the final year, I should say. Um, that's limiting because if Miles Turner has a career year, um, you know, as a full-time center, then, you know, who knows what the contract value will be for a guy who protects the rim at a high level and, you know, is one of the higher volume three-point shooting centers. So in that regard, it could just also be a situation where it's like, hey, you know, that could have been – DeAndre Aiden could have been our long-term solution that we just get out of the way now. We know it's going to be our solution because um, we – mathematically, it may not make sense for, you know, a contract extension for you to get done now, and we would have clarity for the next four years. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be interesting. It really is out there. I, I think that that was kind of – the Pacers' only real opportunity – I mean, I don't know how serious they were about Miles Bridges overall when, um, before going after Aiton. But after that, I mean, free agency is just really – it's dried up this year. I mean, this is a very weak class. And now I feel like there's guys like, you know, Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell who have really kind of put everything on hold. Do you imagine KD, you know, getting this situation resolved? Or do you, you think he just goes back to Brooklyn? I just think it's so challenging to come up with a viable trade for a uh, player so talented, uh, but is also um, has a little bit of an injury history with the Achilles tear and is 35 uh, or going to be 35 soon, I believe. Um, that That's pretty challenging, I feel like, uh, to necessarily make everything, like check every box uh, to get the trade done because you can't gut your team. Uh, and then have like one high level player left and then a depleted supporting cast and um, think you can win a title because then you kind of would be creating the Brooklyn Nets after the uh, James Harden trade in a way uh, if you're the team acquiring KD uh, in that situation. So I think I think the most viable thing is just you know starting the season with the Nets and just seeing if maybe a team, uh, gets a little, uh, you know, desperate, uh, putting some more chips like future assets on the table um, because they think they have a chance or they just, you know, really uh, think time's running out. I think that may be the way to go because current players and assets um, that are short term, that's going to be tough to necessarily deplete if you are trying to contend. And, um, you know, you have to with a 35 year old. So I just think, I, I don't know. I, I just think when you look at, at the current landscape, you know, you just look at like teams like uh, the Raptors. If you're not willing to put Scotty Barnes on, you know, in a trade, it just really depletes the overall like landscape of what's out there. Oh, no doubt. And I just think, you know, when you talk about depleting a team, I mean, you look at the Lakers now, the players that ended up trading to get Anthony Davis, sure, they did get a championship, but that was a, you know, I don't want to overqualify them, but I mean, that was a, a decent enough starting lineup of players that got moved that, you know, you look at the Lakers bench now, and yeah, it's it's thin. They can't afford another real. I mean, Lonnie Walker was really the contract that they could afford to bring in this year. That that says a lot. I mean, a guy you're obviously very familiar with, but it just shows that there's a man. The Lakers really, you got three really high paid players. That if a team is to bring in Durant, if they're going to give up everything, 
are they still really a championship contender? I mean, if so, your window is, is small. So after the Rudy Gobert trade, I feel like it puts teams in a spot where, whoa, I mean, do you really have the largest trade package ever to go after Kevin Durant? So I think, unfortunately, for you know teams that aren't in the sweepstakes, like maybe you and I, it's really put a damper on free agency because – you know, everyone's just in a waiting game. I know for, for Aiton, it, it kind of delayed the process massively. Now the Pacers are sitting here with all this money, nowhere to spend it. So it's an interesting spot. It's disappointing. But Grant, as we wrap up, tell everybody where they could find you on social media and some of the awesome content that you have out there. Yeah, for sure. My uh, Twitter account uh, is my first and last name, at Grant Afseth, A-F-S-E-T-H. You know, I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, with the same information and uh, you can find some of my content on um, you know the some of the SI team sites um, covering the Mavericks, Rockets and Spurs uh, folks on those Texas NBA teams and then as well as NBA analysis.net um, and uh, yeah that's that's pretty much uh, where I'm at right now. Awesome love it definitely appreciate you coming on and uh, hey uh, good luck to the both of us and by that I mean getting that top spot in the lottery next year. appreciate you Grant. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.